Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here today. Um, we do have some exciting things lying ahead. We're beginning this morning a new series of messages that will take us through most of the summer entitled, Who is God? I'm excited about um, launching into that today. I want to begin um, by uh, an illustration. Human history is full of examples of a wrong assumption leading then to a wrong uh, behavior or practice. Take, for example, bloodletting. I'm sure you think on this one often. Bloodletting is that uh, medical procedure of old times where they would drain some of the patient's blood in hopes that that person's illness, whatever they were suffering from, would then be remedied. Now, it was based on a wrong assumption, bloodletting. It was a practice based on a wrong assumption. At that time, they assumed that the body was made up of humors, H-U-M-O-R-S. And if these humors were a little bit out of balance, then you had to get them back into balance. So oftentimes the viewpoint was, well, the reason that you have an illness or this problem going on is you have too much blood in you, too much old blood. We'll just let some of that out of you, and you'll feel better. And it was a, it was a, 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 a practice that was, a, or a, a belief system that, basically spanned 2,000 years from antiquity to the, the 19th century, and, and the practice of bloodletting did follow this, this misunderstanding of, of the body's medical makeup. Even after the humoral system fell out of, uh, you know, vogue, it wasn't believed in the medical community anymore, bloodletting still continued on for quite a while after that. So even after it was disproven that the body isn't like this humor system's made up, uh, uh, makeup kind of thing, bloodletting still was often recommended by physicians. In fact, it, it, it led to the division of the medical field more than we realized. You had the physicians that would say to the patient, you need to have uh, some bloodlet out of you. And then they would send them over to what they called the barbers or the barber surgeon, and the barber surgeon would actually do the procedure. And, and the they, uh, barber pole that you see is representative of bloodletting. The red and white barber pole, it represented blood and bandages, okay? So if you ever go to the barber and you see that pole, you better watch out. They may want some of your blood, who knows, you know? At any rate, it was uh, used to treat a wide range of diseases, and it became almost a standard treatment for every ailment. An older British medical text re recommended bloodletting for acne, asthma, cancer, cholera, coma, convulsions, diabetes, epilepsy, gangrene, gout, herpes, indigestion, insanity, jaundice, leprosy, plague, pneumonia, scurvy, smallpox, strokes, tetanitis, uh, tuberculosis, and a hundred other uh, illnesses. So basically, if you went to the doctor back in that day, they were going to take some of your blood. Here's a typical course of treatment that occurred back in the day when this was the belief system. A sergeant in, in the French army was stabbed uh, on July 13, 1824. He was in single combat with another person, got stabbed in the chest. He lost so much blood he fainted. Well, they rushed him to the hospital where he was immediately bled. And they took 20 more ounces out of the poor guy to prevent inflammation. During the night, he was bled another 24 ounces. Early the next morning, the chief surgeon bled the patient another 10 ounces. During the next 14 hours, he was bled five more times. Medical attendants thus intentionally removed more than half of the patient's normal blood supply. In addition to the initial blood loss, which caused the sergeant to faint, bleedings continued over the next several days. By 29th of July, the wound had become inflamed and infected. The physician applied 32 leeches to pull out some of that blood. 
Over the next few days, there were more bleedings and a total of 40 more leeches added to this guy. The sergeant recovered and was discharged on October 3rd of that same year. His physician wrote this. By the large quantity of blood loss amounting to 170 ounces, that's four liters, or five liters, I should say. Beside that, drawn by the application of leeches, probably another two pints, about one liter. The life of the patient was preserved. It's a miracle this guy lived, right? We now know it was a miracle this guy lived. See, a wrong assumption that the body is made up of humors led to a wrong practice bloodletting. And even after it was discovered that the body wasn't composed of these humors like they thought, bloodletting still continued on to be the practice. Some things die hard. Now, this morning we're beginning a a new series of messages uh, addressing the question, who is God? And hopefully part of what we want to do in this series of messages is get some wrong assumptions about God out of there. Get them out of your makeup of what you think and know about God because wrong assumptions leads to what? Wrong practices. And oftentimes, if we have a misconception about God, if we have a misunderstanding of who he is, a misrepresentation of God, guess what it leads to? Misdirection in our faith. A wrong way that we practice and live out our faith. Now, I know this. You're going to hear some things over the next 10 weeks that are going to rattle your understanding of God just a little bit. Maybe, maybe give you a different understanding of who he is. And for some of us, old practices will die hard. And I want to encourage you, if you run into something that's been a misconception of God in your life, you have to evaluate that. You have to do battle. You don't want to be continuing the practice of bloodletting when humors don't exist, Right? And, and so it's the case with God. If you have some wrong understanding of God that's leading to some misdirection and, and wrong practice in your life, be open to the Holy Spirit and to God being revealed to you in the way he longs to be revealed. In fact, this is kind of my hope for us for the next few weeks that, that we see God for who he is, see him as he longs to be known, and then to do some serious evaluation. Is our faith being practiced accordingly? Here's an introduction question for you to consider, and I'm going to give you 30 seconds of silence on my part for you to consider this question. And the question is this. What comes to mind when you think about God? Take about 30 seconds now and just do some reflection and maybe write down some things in your note-taking guide. What comes to mind when you think of God? Okay, if you think of God as an overzealous policeman, you're going to walk on eggshells. You're going to be fearful in your practice of your faith. If you think of God as an angry judge, then you're going to feel guilty and you're going to feel a lot of condemnation in your life. If you see God as some kind of benevolent grandfather figure, most likely you'll practice your faith with a very casual view of sin. If you see God as someone who dispenses rewards to those who are good and crushing discipline to those who are bad, 
you're going to probably practice a faith where you try to earn your way with God. You're going to be into good works and, 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 and working hard and all that kind of thing. See, a wrong assumption leads to a wrong practice. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is why a study about who God is is so valuable, I think. Here's a couple reflection points to consider this morning. What you think about God shapes the relationship. What you think about God shapes the relationship. What you believe about how God sees you shapes the relationship. So, what you think of God shapes a relationship. What you think God thinks about you shapes a relationship. This is why it's so important to understand who is God. Who really is he? Our study of God is, I hope, going to be more than learning some neat attributes about God and some new information about God. I hope it becomes something that God uses in order to uh, further and deepen our relationship with him. In fact, J.I. Packer gets at this whole understanding of, about studying God and, and how you should approach it. Our aim in studying the Godhead is to know God. Amen? Right? It's not to get some new, cool information. It is to know who he is better. It's to know God. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. And then... C.S. Lewis said this, I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of a trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. So as we go throughout this series over the next 10 weeks, um, I, I, I pray that, that this question will be addressed in your life thoroughly. Do you believe that God has created you for Closeness, love, and friendship. And you'll get to the place of saying, yes, I believe God has created me for closeness, love, and friendship. Your misconceptions about God can really mess you up. They often diminish who God is, they misrepresent who he is, and they then lead to a misdirection in your faith. So be open to what the Holy Spirit is going to speak to your hearts over the next few weeks. Let your view of God become fanatically biblical, and then let your faith respond accordingly. So enough introduction. Now we're going to get into just a little bit of what this series is all going to be about this morning by looking at the question, Who is God? Using Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. And here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to read this scripture out loud with me, which means you read it out loud with me. Okay? So here we go. We're going to read this out loud. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And here's our big thought this morning about God, um, and it'll become apparent as we go throughout the morning, but based on this scripture is this. God is the hero. God is the hero. 
Now, when we look at the Bible, oftentimes what we do is we look at various biblical characters and we view them as heroes. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are a lot of heroes in the Bible, so to speak. But when all is said and done, and when you drill down on this thing, the main hero of the Bible is whom? God! Do you see God as a hero? Because that's Zephaniah 3.17. It's describing a hero to us. For me, a hero has to be someone that's with me, first and foremost. They're not going to be much of a hero to us if they're not with us. What's the first thing that's stated about God? He is with you. So let's look at this first. He is with you, and he is mighty to save. A unique attribute of our God in Christianity is he is, at the, he is a God who is with us. He's not a distant comic book kind of hero who comes in, saves the day, and then sweeps out of your life and goes saves the day for somebody else. Our God is with us. This is a big deal. And this is part of the reason I consider God to be of the hero status. He is a God who is with us. Amina Brown articulates this really well as she does a poetic reading of Psalm 139. So watch this, and as you watch this, think about this fact. Our God is a God who is with us. How the word of God to us is simply themed this way. I am with you, and I know you. That's Psalm 139, as Amina just read it. We have a hero God who is with us. And not only is he with us, he's able to save us, but not only save us, he's mighty in the saving of us. It doesn't depend on us, our salvation. It depends on the mighty one, our hero God. Jesus, then, is the captain of our salvation. A great picture uh, of this mighty one to save is illustrated for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Let me read that scripture to you, and then I'm going to explain it. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Now, this verse is painting a picture that would be very familiar to the audience uh, of, the, of the biblical era uh, of, a, of a mighty, conquering Savior. See, what, what it was referring to was a general practice that these people would have seen occur in their day. A, a, a conquering Roman general would come back to the, to, the, to the Roman capital there, and he would come as, as one who had defeated the foes of Rome, and he'd come this way. He'd come dressed in his, in his best armor, in his chariot, and chained to his chariot was the defeated enemy. Of Rome, and he would go to that city, and, and behind him was all these conquered enemies attached by chains to his chariot, and they would go crazy cheering for their conquering general who was mighty to save, and the and the and the and the enemy was on public display and disgrace, and it would be a moment of great celebration. This is what is being referred to here by this terminology. He leads us in triumphal procession. We've got to see that our Jesus that we love is our 
conquering one. He is the one who is mighty to save, and he's coming in, so to speak, in the chariot, and behind him is Satan and the demonic hordes. They're defeated, and they're chained, and they're no longer able to oppress us, and we have this mighty conquering Savior, and we're supposed to get that picture here, Paul, saying here, see Christ as the one mighty to save your conquering general, the captain of your salvation. I'm not much of a soccer fan, but every now and then I turn it on, usually by accident, sports center. One of the things I've always noticed about soccer matches, there's a lot of fan noise. It's like a rumble. It's like these people are crazy, the fans of soccer. They're fanatic in their, in, in their being a fan. And if you watch a, a soccer match at all, the noise is just always, it's like a constant hum. It's so loud and fanatical. And here's what I think. When it comes to Jesus, our, our mighty one to save, when it comes to God who is mighty to save, the church, the bride of Christ, ought to have this rumble, this roar, constantly of praise, of adoration that just is erupting all the time because our Savior is what? Mighty to save. We ought to be at least as fanatical as some soccer fans. Those people are absolutely crazy, aren't they? They are crazy. But in a good illustrative way, they demonstrate to us how crazy we ought to be about our hero God. Are you crazy about him that way? Does praise just erupt out of your lips because he's so mighty to save? He's with you? Well, let's move on to the next thought of Zephaniah 3.17, and this one is mind-blowing. He delights in you and will rejoice over you with singing. He delights in you and will rejoice over you with singing. Now, our hero God is not only with us, he's not only mighty to save, but he delights over you and rejoices over you with singing. Do you ever think of God that way? Does that ever even enter into your mind? This word, rejoice over you, is interesting. It means he spins and sings over you. He's so happy. He's spinning around with great joy. Uh, elsewhere, this word rejoice takes on a, 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 a richer, deeper meaning. When you go to like Isaiah 62, verse 5, it says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Most bridegrooms I know are pretty happy to be married to their bride. Here just a while back, uh, Jesse, who was in our little video vignette here, got married to Natalie. And I, I observed from the back with one of my grandkids, and one thing I noticed about Jesse, he just smiled. He was happy. No one had to say, Jesse, be happy. He was happy. Ask Jesse. He'll tell you he was happy. A bridegroom is happy. He delights in his bride. He rejoices over his bride. That's our God. Does that not blow your mind or what? I kind of picture this this, uh, this way. I see God like a, one of those Russian dancers. Hey, you know they're dancing. I'm a terrible dancer, okay? So that was as much as you're ever going to see from me. In fact, I'm going to be a little bit transparent with you uh, about, uh, I know it was, tat, it was bad. About, uh, oh, it would have been about 15 years ago, Joanne Lyon, Dr. Lyon, who is uh, um, 
superintendent over the Wesleyan Church at that time was over World Hope. She came to visit us at New Hope. And uh, I asked her to speak on, on, you know, missions and some of the things that are going on around the world there with, with that organization that she was headed up at that time. She got up at the platform, and she, was, she had just been to some place in Africa, and she was hooting it up and dancing, and she said, come on up here, Steve, and dance with me. I sat there, uh-uh, uh-uh, they don't want to see this. You're graceful, and you ha- actually have some rhythm. I'm awkward, and I'll just fall down. So, you know, our God... You get in this picture. God loves us. He delights over us. He dances over us. Like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, he rejoices in that manner over us. That's our hero God. That's why I'm saying he's a hero. Let's go on to one last thought here from Zephaniah 3, 17, and it's this. He quiets you with his love. The Lord's love is so strong, it's so compelling, it's so deep, it's so adequate, it just hushes you. It just silences you. There's a silent ecstasy when you begin to understand who God is and how much he loves you. Luther said it this way, referring to this scripture. He will cause you to be silent so that you may have in the secret places of your heart a very quiet peace and peaceful silence. So here is one verse, Zephaniah 3.17 on who God is. One verse, and you begin to explore it, and it begins to blow, I think, a lot of misinformation right out of the water about who God is. First of all, he's with you. He's mighty to save. He spins over you with singing. He rejoices and delights in you. And he quiets you with his love. His love is so overwhelming, it just leaves you speechless do you think you can trust such a god do you think he has your best interests at heart is this how you see god this morning see i think this summer is an opportunity for us at grace point to begin to accurately understand god as he longs to be known and in doing so some misconceptions i hope will be torn down and some faith practices that maybe were formerly thought of being very important maybe they'll be discarded and some new ways of approaching God and understanding God will be embraced. Chip Ingram, author and pastor, said the following in his book, God as He Longs to Be Seen, and it's a reference that I've been using uh, for this series and we're using for our small group study for those of you who are doing that this summer. He said this, looking back, I now realize that my pre-Christian ideas about God were very much with me. I had seen God as someone who dispenses rewards for those who do good and crushing discipline for those who were bad. When things were not going well, I assumed I had done something wrong. My misconceptions and misperceptions of God had produced a very driven person who struggled with workaholism for the first decade of his ministry. Rooted deeply in any driven achiever is the sense that who you are is determined by what you do. As these verses, like Zephaniah 3.17, washed over my heart and soul, God's Spirit used the words to recalibrate my view of Him, to separate my performance from my identity. Like a light bulb coming on inside my head, I made the connection that God's love and delight had absolutely nothing to do with my work or my performance. I began a new era in my relationship with Christ. In that instance, I realized in a fresh way that God was on my side, that He really delights in me for the first time in a long time. I was able to separate my performance from what God thought of me. I was free to do what I could and simply trust God for the rest. I, um, 
And it all started with the subtle change in my perception of God. His word removed some spiritual cataracts that obstructed my view of him. So this morning we begin a 10-week journey of looking at the question, who is God? And here's our goal, to see God as he longs to be seen. To see God as he longs to be seen. Now God, through hundreds of pages of scripture, has made himself known to us. God, through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, has made himself known to us. God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, has made himself known to us. And he wants us to see him for who he is. He he longs for us to see him as he's been revealed. Amazing attribute by amazing attribute. And so over the next few weeks, hopefully, misconceptions will be dismantled and a correct view of God will be embraced, resulting in us practicing our faith differently. As we close this morning, I want to once again make this invitation open to all of you. If you have a need today, if you have something crushing your spirit a little bit, if you have a concern of some sort, um, and you would like some prayer, make your way after service to that area over here in the side of the church where it says prayer team. And some men and women will meet with you and they will pray with you. Do not leave this place carrying a burden. Do not leave this place distressed. Go share your burdens with a brother or sister who loves you in the Lord, and they'll pray for you and minister the love of Christ to you um, using that avenue, okay? Um, let's close with a word of prayer, and then we have a, a song that really ties into the message this morning. Would you bow your heads, please? God, we love you so very much. You are the God with us. You are the hero of the story. But more than being a hero, you're a hero that's with us. And to me, you can't be a hero unless you're with us. And that is who you are, God. Scripture after scripture after scripture in the Bible makes it apparent, whether it's Psalm 139, whether it's Zephaniah 317, whether it's over in 2 Corinthians, but you're the God who is with us, and you are mighty to save. We are not mighty, but you are mighty. You are a hero. You love us. You spin over us. You rejoice over us. I can't even understand what that means. But it means, God, I can find security in you just because you are who you are. And God, I pray this day we'd understand the depth of the love you have for us, that at times it would just hush our hearts, that we'd have this silent ecstasy basking in the love of a God that we don't deserve. This is who you are, as revealed by Zephaniah 317. And I pray for some, this would begin to expand their understanding of you, God, and who you are. And I pray over the next 10 weeks, each week would be one of learning some new attribute about you, but more than learning it, becoming inspired by it, becoming changed by it, becoming more informed by it, but also becoming more relationally deep with you because of it. So God, do a work in us that only you can do. Holy Spirit, you're invited into this process, of course. Have your way in us. Change our hearts. Uh, Just fill us with the presence and the knowledge of the Father. But more than anything, I pray that everybody in here would be secure in knowing there is a God who is for them. There is a God who is for them. Now as we sing this song, Mighty to Save God, may it be a song that takes on new understanding, new urgency, And may we praise like a fanatic soccer player today. In your name, Jesus, amen.